Well, one of the truths we have discovered so far in this Basic Bible Doctrine series is that all biblical doctrine matters. I feel each week we could get away with saying like, now this is the most important part of scripture. In reality, they're all essential and it'd be very difficult to write their importance. But that said, our study tonight is very, very important. We're combining the doctrines of man and sin into one, one lesson. And together we're going to learn about the devastating sin problem man has before his creator. The doctrines of man and sin are also known as anthropology and hamartiology, and they fully set up the doctrine of salvation. And that's a second bigger truth we've learned throughout our time studying these Bible doctrines, namely that all biblical doctrines are related. It's very difficult to study any one doctrine on its own without somehow leaning into or blurring the lines with another doctrine or, or, or tying into some other biblical truth. That's because God didn't reveal his word, his revelation as neatly packed propositional statements, but as a tapestry of the Bible. We're pulling at individual threads to try and learn more about these little parts of the Bible. It's all woven together and you can't help but uh, pull on many threads at once wherever you go. Nonetheless, though, that's not a bad thing because understanding the relation of one doctrine to another is part of learning the, the scriptures and learning Bible doctrine. And so, like I said, we're going to see between this week and next week how the doctrine of salvation, which is obviously so pertinent to us, it sits on the shoulders of the doctrines of man and sin. You're not going to get salvation right without first getting the doctrines of man and sin right. And if you, uh, you know, obviously, accordingly, if you get the doctrines of man and sin wrong, you're, you're pretty much bound to get the doctrine of salvation wrong. To the degree you get the sin problem wrong, you're You're going to get the sin solution wrong. And that has very much happened throughout church history. For example, many people were interested about the debate surrounding predestination, election, things like that. What is God's role and man's role in salvation? But your position on these issues is largely going to be influenced by your understanding of the sin problem. How deep does it go? How far does it go? How bad is it? That's one thing we want to uh, discover tonight, just how deep does our sin problem go. And we'll save the sin solution, the answer for for next time when we get into the doctrine of salvation. And suffice it to say, uh, seeing that all doctrines are related, as we learn more about sin and uh, man tonight, we will be learning more about God, Christ, salvation, the church. But first, let's see what the word has to say about man, who we are before God, and then sin how we went wrong uh, before God. So it's really two parts in one. Let's begin with the doctrine of man, the first part for our time together. What does the Bible say about man? And throughout history, mankind has not only questioned who is God, but also who am I? We're clearly separate from the animal kingdom, alone in the universe. Humans are unique. So where did humans come from? Man today views the origin of man atheistically, atheistically, I should say, through evolution. Man is therefore not really that unique. We're just more evolved. Human life is not sacred or special. We're really just further along cosmic space dust. It's just further evolved than other things. That worldview has huge implications for ethics, by the way, although that's not something we'll get into for now. We want what the Bible says, and the Bible paints a much different picture of the origin of mankind. And scripture being our authority tells us that mankind did not evolve, but was created 
by God directly in a special way. And of all creation, God made humans to be more like him than anything else. All creation reflects and bears the glory of God, but mankind the most. Man was created to be like God, to represent God, and to glorify God. And so here in the doctrine of man, we just aim to study what the Bible says about mankind and the creation, or the pinnacle rather, of God's creation. And really, we're going to focus mostly here on what the Bible says about man before things went wrong. And so we're going to study first the creation of man, the nature of man, and then we'll talk about the fall of man. The creation of man, the nature of man, and then the fall of man. So first, the creation of man. The Bible does answer the age-old question, where do we come from? There's, there's no mystery here. Man did not evolve. He was not transplanted to earth by aliens. He rather was specially created by God in his own image. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive here. I think most of you already know this, but we're going to establish the basics of what the Bible says. At first, we were created by God's hand. Genesis one twenty seven affirms, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.7 goes on to recall how God literally formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And says it breathed, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Eve likewise got the special creation treatment. Genesis 2, 21 through 22. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The point is that God made Adam and Eve both directly through an act of special creation. All humans thereafter come about by natural procreation. But the first humans were the product of God's special creation, not evolution. And theologically, that's very important to establish that the human race, going back to the first humans, came from from God's special creation, not by some other natural means. And keep in mind, Christ himself affirmed the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and their special creation. We can reference Matthew 19, 3 through 6. And Christ took the Bible as literally true. He took Adam and Eve, Noah, the flood, other places, just at face value, what, what truly happened. So man was made by God's hand. Why did God make us, though? Well, the ultimate reason, second point, we were created for God's glory. We were made by God's hand. We were created for God's glory. God did not need to create anything, let alone mankind, to somehow be completed or to be fulfilled. And God existed perfectly in the Trinity before creation. He has no, he's independent. He has no need for creation to fulfill him. But God chose to create in the otherwise mystery of his will. Ultimately, though, to reflect his glory uh, as a reflection of his, his own glory. And mankind was uniquely created for this purpose. You may know Psalm 19, which tells us all creation was made to reflect and behold the glory of God. Mankind sits at the top of that. Isaiah 43, 7, for example, where God speaks of all his people, it says, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. God made people for his glory. That's the reason we exist, to reflect his glory. Psalm 86, verse 9, adds that all the nations whom you, God, has made, they shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. 
we've, we've become out of order, but one day that order will be restored. The nations, all mankind, will fulfill our created purpose to give God glory. Revelation 4.11 looks forward to that time where it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Because of your will, they existed and were created. Attributing God's worship to him being the creator. He made us and we're for him. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. We exist for him. And it should be noted that our life purpose to glorify God is not detached from our joy and enjoyment in life. God did not make us as mere robots. And to the contrary, man is most fulfilled or satisfied when our purpose in life comes into alignment with God's purpose for our lives. When we make the purpose of our life chasing after some part of creation to glorify creation, really to glorify ourselves, that's when we find the deepest discontentment. But when we we find our life's purpose in Christ, back to the glory of God, we find uh, the deepest joy and fulfillment there is. Thirdly, we were created in God's image. We were created by God's hand. We were created for God's glory. We were created in God's image. This is a very important point to establish. Again, I'm sure you know this, but this is a basic Bible doctrine. We're we're hitting all the basics here. Genesis, Genesis 126. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And since the beginning, mankind's hallmark has been being made in God's image and likeness. Not true of inanimate creation, not true of the animal kingdom. Mankind is alone said to bear God's image in this special way. We then wonder, though, like, what what does that really mean? What does it mean to say we, we bear God's image? How? It's been debated throughout church history. You could go many different ways. There's the the moral explanation that we share God's sense of right and wrong. We have a morality unlike the animals. Or spiritual explanation that that man has the same essential nature of God. We have a spirit, an immaterial part of us unlike the animals. There's a mental explanation that man shares God's ability to think, reason, speak, feel, make decisions. The relational explanation Man shares God's relational nature on a higher level. Or the functional explanation, man shares God's function of ruling and reigning over the earth, going back to the creation mandate. The Hebrew words for image and likeness refer to things that are similar but not quite identical and possibly representative. But nothing more is ever actually explained in Scripture about what it it means. We're left to infer what it means. I think if you were to identify any one of these explanations to the exclusion of the others, you'd be wrong. I think the image of God really is a a a compilation of of all these things. Everything that uniquely sets us apart from the rest of creation is part of us being in the image of God and and reflecting his likeness. Another question, though, is what happened to man's status as an image bearer after the fall? Did it go away? Did we lose it? Because now we're sinners. Are we no longer in God's image? And the answer to that is, is no, we did not lose the, our status as image bearers. We still are made and still reflect the image of God. The image of God was retained in us in its essence after the fall. You see this, for example, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is after the flood. 
But God says this, whoever sheds man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. One of the the serious transgressions that led to the flood was violence, murder, and bloodshed. After the flood, God sets up essentially a death penalty, blood for blood. The primary reason human life is sacred. Man was made in God's image. And God does not take lightly anyone taking that life into their own hands. Likewise, uh, James 3, 9. He's speaking of the sins of the tongue. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. James still believes we're made in the image and likeness of God, even though we're sinners. And so, no, mankind did not lose the image of God after the fall. But we can say it has been marred. We no longer represent the image of God as we were made to. Morally, spiritually, mentally, relationally, functionally, man's likeness to God has been adversely affected. Thankfully, after salvation, this distorted image can be renewed. And after glorification, this distorted image will be perfected. In glory, we will actually become perfect image bearers as we were meant to be purely reflecting God's glory. Before moving on though, it's good to pause for a quick word of reflection as you think about man, all man being made in the image of God. Even though that's marred, we we still are image bearers, which means we should treat all other human beings, no matter what, with with a, a, a level of respect and honor and love just by the mere fact that they're made in the image of God. That, that's enough. At the end of the day, we're all very much brothers and sisters. There's only one race, the race of Adam, the human race. And this should lead us as Christians to treat one another accordingly. And likewise, we know the one thing the image of God does not refer to is, is our, our fleshly form, our outward appearance. Which means male and female are both equally in the image of God, even though they look different. Skin color, likewise, has nothing to do with reflecting the image of God and the glory of God. The same goes for even after the fall, the tragedy of some who are either deformed or diseased or the least members of our society should elicit our compassion towards such people because they're still equally made in the image of God, though marred by sin, should elicit our compassion for them. And lastly, the same goes for the unborn. There's no physical state at which point you enter the image of God. It doesn't start when you have a heartbeat. It starts at conception when when a soul enters into a physical state at conception. And this should have major implications toward how we treat the unborn. These children, though they're not yet out of the womb yet, they're still image bearers just by the nature of the the soul God has given them now in, in flesh in some point of development, even if they haven't been born. And when you keep in mind the fact that God warned mankind not to shed another person's blood because they're made in the image of God, how we should, that should have serious ramifications on something like abortion, which is literally just that. You know, the sin of the flood has come back in a pretty nefarious way. But for the Christian, it should be rather unconscionable, and, and we should be those coming to the defense of those most vulnerable members of our society and standing up for them precisely because They're made in the image of God. They're image bearers uh, nonetheless. Something we need to always keep in mind. Now let's move on to a second category here, the nature of man. 
Setting the doctrine of man, we, we saw the, the creation of man now, the nature of man. The, theologians have debated throughout the ages what it means to be made in the image of God. Also debated just what's the nature of mankind, us as humans? How are we made? How many parts do we have? What, what's our nature? What makes us as beings? Let's start with what we know. First, man has a material side. It should be obvious. You can feel yourself. You have a physical nature, but the Bible does establish we're not phantoms. Man has a material side. Genesis 2-7, we saw God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Likewise, Genesis 3-19, part of the curse where God says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Interesting in the Hebrew, there's a play on words with the, with the name Adam and the, the name or the, the word for ground or the earth. Uh, in Hebrew, you have the word Adam. That word Adam can refer to a proper name for Adam, the person, or it can refer to mankind in general. The word for mankind in, in Hebrew is Adam. And the word for ground in Hebrew is Adamah. And as, as closely related, a play on words, we were taken from the ground. We were earthbound. We have a material nature. It's part of us. And when we die, the material nature returns to the ground. Adam goes back to Adama. In Psalm 104, verse 29, it says, You hide your face, speaking of God, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, and they expire and return to their dust. We know this already. This is obvious, but we have a physical nature, and it expires. But the spirit does not. You know, what's, what's obvious to us, but not as much to others, is that we know we have a material side and also an immaterial side. Psychology today is, is literally the study of the soul. That's what the word psychology means, the study of the soul, which is ironic because most modern secular psychologists deny the existence of a soul. We're just a body, and your emotions, your decisions, your feelings can be reduced to chemical impulses in the brain. You have no soul and that reduces human value infinitely. But scripture teaches otherwise. We can appreciate truly psychology, the study of the soul in scripture, if you know what I mean. The Bible teaches. Secondly, we have an immaterial side. Man has an immaterial side, a spirit. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. It says, speaking of death, it says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. At death, our bodies, our, immaterial, our material side goes back to the ground, but the spirit lives on. It was made to live on forever. It goes back to God, either with God or away from God in judgment. The spirit lives on. We have a spirit. Remember on the cross, Luke twenty-three forty-three, Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. They were both about to physically die. Their, their bodies would decay. Of course, Christ would be resurrected. Not that thief, not at that point at least, but both of them were going to live on. Their souls were, would go to heaven. They had an immaterial side. Death really represents the separation of our material side with our immaterial side. Acts 7.59, the, the first martyr, Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, he cried out, Lord, receive my spirit. He knew that though his body was about to expire, his spirit would go on to be with the Lord. And so we have a material side and an immaterial side. The next question is, is there more? Is there, is there like a third part? 
And some have said, yes, there, there's a little minority view in there. And some believe human nature can actually be divided into three parts, body, soul, and spirit. It's known as the trichotomous view. And they're obviously making a distinction between soul and spirit. I'm not going to get into this. It's rather an arbitrary distinction, and it's not upheld by Scripture. It is true that the Bible sometimes refers to our inner man with the word spirit, and sometimes refers to the inner man with the word soul. But you can't ever really press a meaningful distinction between the soul and the spirit, because by and large throughout the whole Bible, soul and spirit are used interchangeably, like all the time. No meaningful distinction can really be made biblically. It's really an arbitrary distinction. Rather, the best view is simply to uphold the clear teaching of Scripture that man just has two parts. Leave it at that. We have an outer and an inner, a physical and a spiritual, material and immaterial. It's known as the the dichotomous view. Really, the Bible uses many different terms to refer to our inner nature, heart, mind, soul, strength, spirit. You could say we have five parts if you count them all. But no, they're all just different ways of representing the the inner nature from a different angle. And we have an outer and an immaterial side and a material side uh, and leave it at that. But keep in mind, though, thirdly, man is a unified whole. Though we have two parts, we were made to always exist as two parts, as a unified whole. God always made us to be a material side and an immaterial side joined together. Back in Genesis 2-7, Adam did not exist until... The breath of God entered that pile of dust. Only when the two came together did Adam come into existence. Death was introduced after the fall. Keep in mind, death does not represent going out of existence or fading to black. It is merely the temporary division of your material side and your immaterial side. Death is a separation of our two natures. The body goes back to ground, to dust. The soul lives on, again, either with God or in salvation or away from God in judgment. But keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 20, elsewhere, teach that everyone will be reunited with a physical body at the resurrection. Those who are saved inherit a body fit for eternal life. Those who are lost are given a body fit for eternal death. But all are resurrected. Every soul is reunited with a physical body at the resurrection. The nature of those physical bodies is largely a mystery to us, but mankind will not live forever in a disembodied state. We will, in eternity, be material and immaterial together in one body, in one nature. Now, as we think of man's nature as consisting of two parts, we should also be reminded here a little more devotionally that God demands worship from both of our parts. We are one person, physical and spiritual, yet God wants worship. He wants us to reflect his glory in both of our parts, both sides of us. He wants us to exclusively worship him with our bodies, how we conduct ourselves, yet also with our hearts. Now, heart worship must come first. He wants your heart above all. Rather, I should say, first and foremost, he wants your, your spirit given over him to him in worship. Like Christ said in John four twenty four, God is seeking true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit, from the heart, from the inside. But that true spirit worship should lead you to then worship him on the outside. He wants us to likewise use our bodies in a manner consistent with his perfect will. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians 6.20 reminds us. It says, you've been bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body. We need to worship him with our whole being. Now, lastly here, a final section, the fall of man. It's still in the doctrine of man, how we are created, and a little bit on the nature of man. Let's, let's talk about how things took a turn and talk about the fall of man. And if you've been with us here at Berean for any stretch of time, you probably know about the fall. It's something we talk about, we reference often enough. But again, this is a basic Bible doctrine series. We're trying to cover the basics. We can't leave this out. There's always someone listening here or later online, and there might be a brand new believer where they've not heard this before. So, you know, let's just establish the basics of what happened at the fall. Because, of course, theologically, this is huge. And when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them in a state of unconfirmed holiness, which means they were innocent of doing anything wrong, but they had not yet positively obeyed God and demonstrated righteousness. God provided a way to test their holiness. So we we begin with number one, the test. If you know your Genesis 1 and 2, that the object of this test was a tree. Which tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the test, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man was allowed to eat from any tree in the garden except this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Theologians conjecture that God intended a sort of probationary period for Adam and Eve, that if they obeyed God over some period of time, that their holiness would have been confirmed and the test would have been removed. They'd be now in a confirmed state of holiness like the angels, no longer able to sin. Then God would have given them access to the tree of life and they would have lived forever in a state of confirmed holiness. That is just conjecture though. The purpose of this test though, we know, is to confirm or deny man's state of holiness. Additionally though, through this test and through this tree, God was giving Adam and Eve a knowledge of sin and a knowledge of good and evil. Not through personal experience. They weren't meant to gain that knowledge through personal experience. Satan tempted them and, and told them that this, this knowledge awaited them through personal experience. But they were not meant to taste and find out for themselves. They gained a knowledge of good and evil without having to enter evil. Just by learning obedience like the holy angels. They know good and evil, though they have not tasted it. But of course, after the test comes number two, the temptation. Adam and Eve are going to learn the knowledge of good and evil the hard way. God allowed Satan to infiltrate the perfect environment of Eden and tempt Eve, as Genesis 3. Satan led Eve to doubt God's word and uh, question God's goodness. His words were filled with some whole lies and half-truths. Many liken, liken Satan's temptation of Eve to the three areas of temptation in 1 John 2, 14 through 16. If the lust of the flesh, where the woman saw that the tree was good for food, if the lust of the eyes, where the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eye, and then you have the boastful pride of life, and the woman saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You know the story. Uh, she took, she ate, so did Adam next to her. They fell. They rebelled against God's only command to them, or prohibitive command. And so we have number three, the result. Adam and Eve failed the test, succumbed to temptation, and fell into sin. And immediately thereafter, there were several judgments or curses that took place. This is later in Genesis 3. God cursed many things, not just Adam and Eve. There's a series 
of initial judgments and curses that affected the rest of history. The serpent was judged. The, the literal animal that Satan inhabited to undergo this temptation was cursed. Apparently before, serpents had legs and were a more glorious type of creature and God cursed them to go without legs. And then secondly, Satan himself was judged. God judged Satan himself, promising constant conflict with man and an ultimate defeat. The woman was judged. God promised pain and childbirth and conflict with man as she, she sought to usurp his authority. The ground was judged. Adama was judged. Since man is dust and gets his life from the dust, God judged the dust. And creation was subjected to futility. Bread, life would come through hardship and toil. And man, likewise, was judged with toilsome labor. Just to live, he'd have to scrape by an existence just to stay alive in this cursed world. And then lastly, all humankind, mankind was judged with death. Uh, we would return it to, uh, to the dust. And we were not made uh, originally to die, but now death was introduced and thereafter judgment. And really, in essence, everything that's wrong, everything broken in this world, picture anything wrong. Uh, it can all be traced back to this, this time, to the fall. Both man and the planet were cursed and sin was introduced to the world. How bad does it get? It's a pretty big fall. How far does it go? How deep does it go? How bad does it get? How, how far is this sin problem going to go? Well, we find out next in the doctrine of sin. So more can be said. We'll leave it there for the doctrine of man, really not considering sin. But let's just, they, they dovetail together. Let's bring in now the doctrine of sin. This is a two-for-one evening, the doctrine of man and sin together. We can't really go much further without getting into now the doctrine of sin. So let's do that. It's only Genesis 1 and 2, and then Revelation 21 and 22. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible that present mankind in right relation to God without sin. That's it. You got four chapters. The first two, the last two. Everything in between is really the story of sin, its consequences, and its solution in Christ. But sin is the problem man faces. There's nothing greater. Like a disease, it infects all of humanity, slowly delivering them to an eternal death. There is one cure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's really only after a person truly understands, comprehends, and rightly responds to the problem of sin that they can truly take advantage of the solution in Christ. You, you got to know and, and contend with and confess the sin problem before you can truly apprehend the sin solution in Christ. So let's now peer more into this sin problem, the doctrine of sin. And like we said before, this is not something we can afford to get wrong. Like the doctrine of man getting the doctrine of sin wrong, it, it's going to take us off the rails with the doctrine of salvation. And Charles Ryrie said this, quote, There are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of the disease will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure of that corruption, end quote. 
It's very true. And so let's labor to make sure we understand that the level, the nature, the depth of this corruption. So let's start first with the definition of sin. Simple, the definition of sin. What is it? Now, the Bible gives no single definition. There are a multitude of different words used to describe this thing we called sin, multifaceted. But if you were to define it to a child, a toddler, you'd probably say something like, sin is just disobeying God. And that's true. That works. Totally fair. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is breaking God's commands or or his laws. And it is. But the more you study all the various terms scripture uses, you, you just get a multifaceted picture, a more robust picture of what sin is. And we can't do a, a huge word study right now, but I can give you some of the fruit of that and paint a little bit of the picture, the resulting picture. So here, here are eight descriptions of sin from the various words used uh, to define it. You won't be able to write these down. You can just listen to these, but sin is missing the mark of God's standard. Sin is going astray from God's path. Sin is turning aside from God's way. Sin is transgressing God's boundary. Sin is trading God's love. Sin is breaking God's law. And sin is disobeying God's commands. And sin is everything that is opposed to God. And more. But all this applies to a person's actions. Sin entails what you do and what you fail to do contrary to God's will. But it also applies to a person's attitudes. Sin entails wrong desires, wrong motives. And finally, this applies to a person's nature. Sin entails the essence of our being. And after the fall, all people are by nature sinners. Again, a good point just to, to stop and check yourself applicationally, have you had perhaps too narrow a definition of sin? Have you mistakenly thought that sin only pertains to your outward actions or or the big things? Do you also realize it includes the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Also, do you pick and choose when you want to obey God? Because as we'll see, we're called to obey him in all of his ways across the board. That's something, though, none of us do. There's not a single person on the planet that obeys God all the time in all ways. This sort of leads to a second topic here, the extent of sin. Again, I know you know this here at this church, but let's establish it, the extent of sin. Namely that this sin condition, it's universal. All people, all ages, all eras, universally, from Adam onward, the only exception being Christ Jesus that all people are sinners. The, the sin nature we have, it's inherited at conception. It's just part of humanity now. And consequently, people now sin because they're sinners. They're born sinners and gives birth to sin. And I'm, let me just rattle off a sampling of verses that show overwhelmingly we're all sinners. This is a universal problem. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings eight forty six. Solomon confessed in his prayer that he says, there's no man who does not sin. Psalm 143 verse 2. The psalmist says, do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. None. Proverbs 20 verse 9. says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Implied answer, no one. 
Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Paul, quoting some Psalms, affirms that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together, they've all become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. And of course, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The list goes on. There's no shortage of verses showing the sin problem is a universal problem. It's, it's universal to all humanity. What's the big deal? What's the problem? Well, you can add here a section on the punishment of sin. The punishment of sin. God must punish sin. He has to because he is perfectly just and holy and righteous. Exodus 34, 7 says God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If he did, he would be unjust. He would be unrighteous. He would be evil if he did not ultimately deal with sin. We're not getting into the problem of evil here, but ultimately, eternally, there's no problem of evil because it's all judged. It's all removed. It's all obliterated and, and dealt with by God's wrath in the end. And if God did not judge all sin and sinners, then we would have a real problem on our hands. But he is a perfectly just and righteous judge. And the penalty for sin is a spiritual death in hell. Hell is a real place where unredeemed sinners are are separated from the glory of God forever. And they only know God's wrath, his displeasure, his judgment. The lost will dwell in hell. And really the final place is known as the lake of fire. Where they find eternal torment. Because they cannot repay their moral debt to God. It will take them eternity to pay their sin debt to God. Again, a multitude of verses establish this. Let's just pick on the ones Jesus gave us. Let's go right to the the horse's mouth because Christ taught more on hell than heaven. Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 25, 41. Speaking of a judgment, a future judgment. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark nine forty three, Christ said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And of course, you can read Revelation 20, 11 through 15, talking about that final great white throne judgment. It's becoming in vogue again today to deny the existence of a literal hell. That you just don't get that teaching from the Bible or from Christ. It's overwhelming and very clear. I know some think they're trying to uphold the love of God, but you don't get that by jettisoning, jettisoning the justice of God. You're distorting who God is. It doesn't work. God is perfectly loving. He's also perfectly just, and he must punish sin. And you also have to keep in mind, those who are eventually sentenced to hell end up there because they deserve it. They're just simply getting what they earned, what they deserved by their sin. And God only does what is right. That includes every time he punishes sin because he is holy. Now, a couple more topics to go here as we're rounding out the doctrine of sin. We're just 
plumbing the depths. How, how bad is it? How deep does it go? Our sin problem, it's, it's universal in nature. Let's talk now about original sin. This, this concept called original sin. You've all heard the term, I'm sure. Everyone's heard the term original sin, but I think few Christians actually know what it actually means. And fewer yet, it's theological significance. It might seem confusing to some, but original sin is a very important theological concept to grasp. Now, original sin, it does not refer to the original sin. It's not talking about Adam and Eve's sin. That's the confusing part of it. It's talking about our sin. It's the sin that is ours because of Adam and Eve's sin. That's what we're talking about here. It's not just the first sin. It's, it's talking about our sin that comes because of Adam's sin. It is mankind's state of sin into which all people are born. Imagine today you apply for a new credit card, comes in the mail, you're approved, but you find right away you have a thousand dollar charge in the account. You've not even used the card. You've never used it, but you already have a debt. This is the effect of original sin on all people. We come already in debt. The impact of Adam's sin on humanity is explained in Romans 5.12. You can, if you're fast, you can turn to Romans 5, a few good verses there. You, you know, we're just doing a survey here, but Romans 5.12 It says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the big debate centers on that last phrase, because all sin. And the question is, in what way did all people sin connected to Adam? And some believe there's really no connection to Adam's sin at all. That it's only talking about our individual sins. And of course, no one denies that we all individually sin, of course. Uh, But some say that they were only held guilty before God because of our own individual sins. Adam's sin is never reckoned to our account. That's known as a Pelagian view. These people reject the idea of, of any inherited guilt or sin from Adam. But really, Romans 5, it just teaches otherwise. The entire context indicates that that the sins of individuals are not in view. This is all about Adam's first sin. It was through Adam's sin that death spread to all people. And when Paul says in that verse, because all sinned, he uses something called an aorist indicative and just referring to a past completed action. Even before all people were born, they were regarded as having sinned because of Adam's sin. That when Adam sinned, God imputed his sin to humankind. And the word impute means to reckon to someone else, to to charge something to someone else's account. Our accounts were all charged when Adam fell, as we existed in God's mind before we were formally created. Why would God impute Adam's sin to all mankind, or rather how we might say? One view, uh, view sees Adam as humanity's representative head. And so when our head sinned, we all sinned. It's known as the federal headship view. Another view sees all humanity present in Adam, being the father of all mankind. And so when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned in him. This is known as the seminal headship view. Either way, though, just Romans 5 teaches that when Adam sinned, he plunged all humanity into a state. This is a binary state, either in sin or out of sin. He plunged us into this state of in sin. Down in verses 18, 19, he says, Through one transgression, 
there resulted condemnation to all men. And then verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And it's because of Adam's sin that all people are regarded as sinners and now are born as sinners in a state of defilement, in a state of sin, with a sin nature, which we'll see shortly. Really though, in rest of Romans 5, it's the parallels between Adam and Christ that, that really seal the deal here on this understanding of original sin, or you might call it inherited guilt from Adam. Adam was the head of humanity. And so when he sinned, even though we had not sinned, we were given Adam's sin or a measure of Adam's guilt. But now you think about Christ. Christ is the head of a new humanity. And when he displayed perfect righteousness, there is death and resurrection. Even though we were not righteous, he gave us his righteousness. This is the parallel Paul establishes in Romans 5. It goes in both directions. And really, in the end, anyone who objects to Adam's guilt being imputed to mankind has to likewise object to Christ's righteousness being imputed to the church, to believers. No, but rather, through our first birth, Adam is our head, and through him, we're made guilty. But through our second birth, salvation, Christ becomes our head, and through him, we're made righteous. The reason this is so important, though, is just found in Romans 5. You're going to get some aspect of the cross wrong, of salvation wrong, of imputed righteousness wrong. What Jesus was doing, accomplishing for us, again, if, if you get parts, aspects of the sin problem wrong, you're going to go wrong downstream. And we'll come back to that next time, but understanding this, this facet of the sin problem that we inherit already a state of defilement and guilt from, from birth, from conception. One last section here to go. Just to, to round out this picture of, of how bad is it? How bad is this sin problem? It's a universal problem. It infects our very nature. We're, we're born with it. We already have a, a type of debt on our account it's from birth. It's the state of humankind. All humanity is uh, cut off from God from the fall onward. But we'll take it one step further with a final subject we'll call total depravity. Well, because that's what it's called, total depravity. We inherit not only from Adam guilt, but also a sin nature. And this is something referred to in total depravity. Not only are we held guilty because of Adam's sin, but we also inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Every person is polluted by sin, now born a sinner. So to clarify, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are sinners first born that way. And sin is just what comes out. Invariably, it comes out. Anyone's a parent, you know that. You don't have to teach them to sin. You don't have to train them to sin. It just comes right out without programming because it's already in there. And so now each person's condition after the fall can be described by this term, total depravity, but we need to explain it. Total depravity does not mean all people are as bad as they could be. And people can do good on a human level, it can be virtue in the lost on a human level, of course. But total depravity means that people cannot do good in any way that pleases God or merits God's favor. You can please other people, but your good deeds are not going to be pleasing God. They're not going to be meriting favor or earning righteousness. 
Man's nature is depraved and corrupt and therefore incapable of any spiritual good. This means people can't merit God's favor by their actions, by their deeds. We're corrupt. He, he does not going to have any of it. We're, we're already defiled. This depravity is described as being total. This does not mean our corruption is intensive, but rather uh, extensive. Again, not all people are as bad as they could be, but our depravity is total in that it touches every aspect of our being. This corruption infects all aspects of our personhood, our intellect, our emotion, our will. It's total in that it just reaches all part of human, human nature. Our hearts are corrupted. Our consciences are corrupted. Our bodies are corrupted and they decay. Let's, let me just show you now again, it's not something we're making up. The scripture just gives the overwhelming testimony in conjunction with sin being a universal problem that it just extends to every part of our being. From birth, we are, as described here, totally depraved. Let me, again, rattle off another laundry list of verses. Starting in the Old Testament, back in the beginning, Genesis 6, 5. Before the flood, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. After the flood, nothing changed. Genesis 8, 21. Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's really the same verdict from before the flood. And God did this on purpose. He obviously knew what he was doing, but wiping out humanity didn't change anything because eight sinners got on the ark and eight sinners got off the ark and repopulated mankind. Nothing was going to change. This sin problem is inherited from birth. We are born this way. Psalm 51.5, David confessed, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. He's not talking about you know, he was a product of infidelity. He's talking about he was corrupt from birth. Likewise, Psalm 58, verse 3. It says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. And those who speak lies go astray from birth. New Testament, Ephesians 2, 3 confirms this. Speaking of those lost in sin, it says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is a verdict in all humanity. Paul's talking about us all BC before Christ. All of us were by nature children of wrath. That's all we would inherit because of our nature. Isaiah 64, a well-known verse, Isaiah 64, 6 confirms that this depravity, this defilement means God doesn't accept the, the supposed good deeds we offer in compensation. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah is reflecting on how no one seeks after God, and it gives a graphic picture of how vile our situation is. That even the deeds we consider to be righteousness, God says, you're, they're still unrighteous. They're done from an impure heart. You're in a state of rebellion. You're defiled. You're not doing this for my glory. I don't accept any of this. All of our supposed righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. 
What can we do about this, this nature problem, this defilement? Jeremiah 13, 23, questions. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard, his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. AKA, no, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change your nature. You can't change your outside nature. You can't change your inside nature. You're accustomed to doing evil. You can't change that. He says later, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than not all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our problem, our, our sin problem is tied to this heart problem we have. And Christ taught the same thing. Mark 7, 21 through 23 said the same thing. He taught that for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of covening and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Most people associate bad people as those who do bad things. And so I don't do all those bad things, and so I'm not a bad person. I stay away from doing this list of bad things. But Scripture paints a different picture that we're all just inherently corrupt from the beginning. Whether or not you avoid some of the more egregious list of bad things, your very heart is bad, is corrupt, and, and just is a, a poisoned well that any, any water being drawn from it is just defiled. And from our insides, we are corrupt. We have a heart condition, a heart level sin problem. Depravity extends to our inner natures. This is our condition from birth. You can summarize it. This, this, uh, the, the consequence of this sin problem, namely that we're just, we're dead. We're spiritually dead. The consequence of this total depravity is spiritual death cut off from God. Ephesians 2.1 it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is a perfect picture of someone who's helpless, motionless, cannot respond, can't, can't do anything. We're just spiritually cut off, dead to God. Again, talking about the results of this total depravity, the best way to, to really describe the consequence of this total depravity, it's a parallel concept called limited ability. Limited Ability, meaning that our, our ability to, to do good is limited after the fall. Our will, we speak of free will, our will is limited after the fall. And that namely because of man's sin nature, he's incapable of pleasing God or meriting favor until man is born again, regenerated. He can't please God. He's a slave of sin. He's a slave of Satan. And this is primarily why we can't save ourselves. Again, we'll see how this is going to fit right into the doctrine of salvation next time, but we don't even have the ability to respond to God. We, we can't do anything to earn his favor. Can't do anything. He has to act first to save us. Again, listen to these verses. Another list, there's a bunch, but how clear they are talking about our, how our will is bound, our, our ability has been hamstrung. John 5, 39 through 42, Christ said to his opponents, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. He says, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know 
You do not have the love of God in yourselves. His opponents were those who, their real problem was that they were unwilling. But he goes beyond that. He says later, chapter later, John 6, verse 44, and then verse 64. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Likewise, verse 65, I should say. And for this reason, I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. He's using terms of ability. He's talking about what you're able to do. And he says, you can't, you you don't have the ability to come to me. He gives the invitation, come to me. He who believes has eternal life. Come, but he also gives the caveat, no one can come. You don't have the ability to come unless the Father draws you, calls you, and grants you that ability. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. And Christ said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And listen, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You don't know God. Like he said to his opponents, you don't have a heart that loves God. You don't have the ability to see God, to know God. The only way you get that is if the Son grants you. The ones to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father. Those are are given the ability to know him. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, The mind set on flesh, on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Another statement of ability. Those in the flesh, they're not even able to do the law of God or please God. They they don't have the ability because of this total depravity. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's another term of ability. It's not that he will not. He cannot. He can't understand them. They're spiritual truths. He doesn't have the spirit. He cannot understand them. And so man's limited ability, the bondage of his will, and his enslavement to sin are clear in Scripture. And they're all made worse. It gets one step worse here. And that this condition uh, that we're in is, is only sealed by the fact that, that demonic forces are at work, keeping us in a state of spiritual slavery and blindness. The scripture also adds, not only is our will bound to sin, but it's also bound and held captive by Satan. Listen to a pair of very stark verses on this. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26, it says that we should, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. Now it's going to talk about unbelievers. It says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. doesn't sound like a free will to me. It sounds like a bound will, a captive will. We were held captive by the devil to do his will. Only God Granting us repentance releases us from that, enables us to come to our senses. That's a a pretty clear, powerful verse. Equally so is 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Talking about people who don't believe. And it says, even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They don't believe because they can't believe, because they're blind, because Satan has blinded them. Did not Christ teach the same thing? Parable of the soils, that the evil one comes, the, the seed is cast on the road, the evil one comes and snatches it away. This is a, a spiritual blindness from our own sin nature, from uh, Satan's slavery of the human race as well, with the power of death. It's just multi-layered, multi-faceted, how bad our problem is. That's the point here, right? Just we're in trouble. This is bad. You can see our sin problem in scripture is drastic. That's, that's the point of this lesson. We're, we're thoroughly lost and depraved in our very natures. And all that comes out of that is, is a huge list of transgressions. We just sin and sin and sin against our God and his perfect law. We have a problem in all the things we do. Yes. But even deeper than that, in just who we are, our very natures, we have a problem. It sounds like then what we need to, to be saved, to be freed. It sounds like we need a new nature. It sounds like we need a new heart. We need new bodies. It sounds like we need to be renewed, reborn, born again. And that is indeed our only hope. Somehow, for us to get out of this sin problem, three things basically have to happen. Our, our sin debt has to somehow be paid. We need to be given or somehow made perfectly righteous. And then we need a, a new heart, really new heart slash body. We need to be reborn, remade because its current one is just corrupt. It's going to keep spewing out more sin. And that's the whole problem to begin with. We need some real help. And none of this is something we can do for ourselves. We can't do any of those three things. God has to do the for us. We are just helpless and hopeless. But thankfully, God has done this for us. He has provided a way for us to, to be saved. You should know that our only help and hope is in his son, Christ Jesus. And this now brings us right to the doorstep of the doctrine of salvation, which will be our attention next week. But already, as we've learned this morning, if you're with us this morning, look, it may not in a sense be fun or uplifting to study the doctrine of sin, but it's a blessing. To, to think on your sin, to dwell on your sin, the depth of your own depravity, that you're, you're not good. Don't, don't convince yourself otherwise. You and I are thoroughly lost before salvation especially and broken. It's a blessing to dwell on your sin nature, your sin problem, and as depressing as it might seem, uh, the blessing comes when you finally realize that you're broke, right? This morning, you're spiritually bankrupt. You've got, you've, you've got nothing by which to save yourself, to endear yourself to God, to gain his favor. You just have nothing. But like Christ pronounced in his beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who, who just finally come to terms and, and come as the beggar, just begging for mercy and his providence and will. Those are the only ones who find the consolation, the comfort of forgiveness in Christ. And just let the sight of your sin drive you to Christ and the cross that's the only place you find mercy, comfort, forgiveness, hope, as you know, and as we'll learn about next time. It's so important to get the sin problem right, according to scripture. The Christians and churches who, who shy away from talking about sin, 
They do so thinking they're, they're making people more comfortable. And in a sense they are, but they're, they're sacrificing deep, lasting, eternal comfort for a cheap momentary comfort. But true comfort only comes when you come to terms with the vast scale of your sin problem before God and you realize that Christ is, I know deep down, it's my only hope. And you go to him with your whole life. And you find you're greeted by a Savior whose grace is greater than all of our sin. That's next time, but that's a good thought to leave on. Despite, you know your sin more than any. You know the depth of your depravity, things you've done, the thoughts you've had before your God. But there's a Savior whose grace is greater than all of that put together, all of your sin. That's good news, which you'll learn more about next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we are encouraged to end on a good note of good news that we we have to be reminded of Christ. Although our our goal this evening was just to to study man and and sin still. We can't leave out the good news. Uh, It's the only thing that rescues us from the pit of despair. Our own sin has dug for us. We we know in our hearts, our consciences do convict us. We are sinners. We're cut off. We sense our depravity. And even if a part of us wants to do good, we know uh, we don't. We do thank you for Christ, the Savior, who has already come. We don't have to wait until next week to know the good news that the one who uh, can pay our sin debt, make us righteous, give us a new nature has already come. And he offers this as we repent and believe. We must first confess our sins and, and truly recognize, own our sin, our sin problem before you. Those who are humble, meek, those who beg and are spiritually poor, Uh, will be received by you. You give grace to the humble. So humble us under your mighty hand and knowing you will exalt us. We thank you for the gift of salvation, which is indeed greater than our sins. We exalt you. Help us take seriously our sin though. As we recall our salvation in Christ, may we not play with sin or toy with it, uh, but cast it down, cast it away from us. May we put it away and glorify the one who, who died to purchase us and save us from it. It's in him that we pray. Amen.